Um, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. And we're just going to read a few verses at the end, verses 32 through 38. And the passage we have before us are the last two verses of this chapter. Matthew 9, beginning at verse 32. And as they went out, that's Jesus and uh, his disciples, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of, de- of the devils. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Now here's the verses we considered this morning. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. That's the word of God. Last Sunday morning, beloved congregation, we were told that one of our ministers, Reverend Jonathan Langerak, was resigning his office in our Spokane congregation. And that brings before us the troubling development that we have that there is presently a severe shortage of ministers in our denomination, and now one more, one less. We are a denomination that's rather small, 33 churches scattered across the United States and Canada. At present, we have eight vacancies, eight vacancies out of 33 churches. Now, there is a candidate that's up for call, and he'll fill one of those vacancies, and we have Reverend Schmidt coming off from the mission field in the Philippines. He most likely will fill one of those vacancies that will bring us down to six vacancies. However, we have three of our active ministers who are a retirement age and will soon be retiring. And we have in our seminary four SEM students, one for each year. And so the need for more ministers is becoming critical. It's with this in mind that I call attention to this passage we have before us at the end of Matthew chapter 9. In the preceding verses, we learn that Jesus went throughout the villages and cities of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and doing many miracles of healing. And when Jesus saw the multitudes who came to hear him, he was moved with compassion because they fainted spiritually and they were as sheep without a shepherd. They were a scattered flock of sheep. 
And now in the verses we consider this morning, we find Jesus' response to that. He informs His disciples that the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Notice, we have a different figure than in the preceding verse. In verse 36, the multitudes are compared to sheep without a shepherd, scattered, wandering, lost. Now, Jesus compares them to a harvest. And since the laborers are few, Jesus instructs his disciples, pray the Lord of the harvest that he may send laborers into the harvest to gather them in. That call comes also to us today, comes to the church at every age, but also, and perhaps especially us, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray, pray the Lord of the harvest that he sends forth laborers into the harvest, into the harvest that is found here in our denomination, in the harvest that's found in the world outside of us. I call your attention to this passage under the theme, praying for laborers in the harvest. We just notice three things, the harvest and the laborers and the prayer. Jesus speaks of the harvest. We ought to say a few things about the harvest in Bible lands. There were two different harvests every year. In the spring of the year, beginning around the Passover, and continuing unto and concluding 50 days later, which was the Feast of Pentecost, there was the small grain harvest starting with the rye and ending with the wheat harvest. Then in the fall of the year, around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents, there was the fruit harvest of grapes and figs as well as olives. There were many olive orchards. The Lord of the harvest was the man who owned the fields, owned the orchards, and the one that also oversaw the bringing in of the harvest in the spring and the fall. That's the Lord of the harvest. Now, Jesus sees here a parable or a picture. First, well, you have to identify the different elements. The first is the crops that are to be harvested. What is the harvest? Well, the spiritual harvest are the elect people of God, whom He has ordained from eternity to be His and to bring to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the harvest, His own people. Then there is the actual harvest itself, the bringing of them in. That's the gathering of God's elect people throughout the ages. 
in Bible times when the crops were ripe. They were harvested and gathered into barns. In like manner, God harvests His own people in every age. He brings them by grace and the power of His Word to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ, and He gathers them, according to the book of Acts, into the church. It's interesting. It's not so that when God gathers the harvest of His people, He just gives them faith, and they live that faith outside the church. That's what some do today. We don't need the church institute. No, he always gathered them into the church, where was the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the office bearers, and the care that they could find there. That's the harvest. Thirdly, and that brings us to the Lord of the harvest, which is God. He's the Lord of the harvest because he owns the harvest. Now, God's elect people fell with the whole human race in the beginning, didn't they? And they were all given over to the power and control and ownership spiritually of the devil. But God delivers them from that. He purchased them through the perfect sacrifice of his son. He ransomed them and redeemed them. So they're his. The harvest is his. And he oversees the actual bringing them in. That's ultimately his work. And then one more, the laborers, and that's going to be the second point. They are the ministers of the gospel that God sends out into the world to preach the gospel of salvation and which he uses to bring his people to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. So those are the elements. Now, according to Jesus, the harvest is plenteous. That was true in Jesus' day. Now, Israel at this time, the nation of Israel, was apostate. They had departed from the law, from the covenant of God. They were about to lose their place in God's covenant. Nevertheless, there were many of God's people still in the nation who needed to be harvested. That's evident from verse 36, which speaks of the multitudes that Jesus saw, and he was moved with compassion, and they're scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. There were many of God's people yet in that apostate nation. And they were harvested, interestingly, not in Jesus' ministry. From every standard today in the church world, Jesus' ministry was a disaster. The crowds followed him in Galilee until they found out that he was not an earthly king and they didn't follow him anymore. And he went down to Judea. And there were only a handful of people, disciples, and they abandoned him at his crucifixion. You'd say his ministry was a flop, but it wasn't. 
all by God's design. Many who followed him and lost faith in him were harvested later on after Pentecost. 5,000 men plus women and children on the day of Pentecost. Later on, 4,000. Daily, God added to the church such as should be saved. Out of the nation of Israel, they were harvested and brought into the church. But the harvest is plenteous at any age of history. And that's due to the fact that God's elect are an innumerable throng, as many as the stars in the heaven, he said to Abraham, and are found in every age and in every nation. In the Apostles' Creed, we acknowledge and confess that the church is Catholic, universal, found in every age, found among all nations and tribes and tongues in these latter days, And that guarantees a plenteous harvest throughout the world. You know, if the free will people who say that man ultimately has control over his destiny, he can take God or leave God, and God stands helplessly by, there's no guarantee that there's going to be a harvest next generation. But God is sovereign. He brings his elect people into every age across the world. The harvest is always full. And the harvest is found both within the established church, because God's works in generations in the church, but also, it's outside the established church. And the harvest is also plenteous today for our church and our denomination of churches, small though we may be. We're here, most of us, as members of generations that God has harvested, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. Someone in our clan went and traced our genealogy back to the time of Napoleon in the church records in Holland when they were taken to take a surname. All those generations. The next generation was harvested. And we're looking forward to that also here. I'm a grandparent. I'm a great-grandparent. I've seen it. The Lord's harvesting in our generations. But there are many outside the church. Many in darkness never came to know Christ, ready for the harvest. And as in Jesus' day, Many who are a scattered sheep in the church world, ready for the harvest. That's the reality. 
Now that brings us to the second point, the laborers. Whereas the harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. Let's understand who the laborers are. We touched upon that briefly a moment ago. In agriculture, laborers are those who bring in the harvest. When the harvest is ripe, under the direction of the Lord of the harvest. And that's true also of the spiritual harvest of God's people. The laborers are, first of all, those who preach the gospel. The Bible is very clear. Our Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes it. There is a special power that God gives to the official preaching of the Word. The Holy Spirit uses that to bring us and His people to faith, to gather them in. Now, that doesn't mean that your work as parents to teach your children are of no, is of no account, or the teachers in the Christian school, or the witness that you give to your neighbor is of no effect, but it's the center of it is the power of the preaching that God uses to bring his people to faith and salvation and gather them into his church. Now, according to Jesus, the laborers are few. And that was true in Jesus' day, first of all. The Jews had their spiritual leaders. They had them aplenty. The scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis. But they were not laboring, for the most part, to gather in the Lord's harvest. The word they brought was not the word of the gospel. Not the word of God. They had corrupted it so badly that it could not be identified as God's word. They brought their own word, the traditions, which led the people to think they had earned their own salvation. And most of them, many of them, were laboring not with a view to helping God's people, but they were laboring to harvest for themselves material gain and power and prestige and the praise of men. They weren't laboring in the harvest of God. There was only a handful of Jesus' disciples that were truly laboring in the harvest. There were the 12 disciples, well, 11. You can't count Judas Iscariot, can you? And then we read in Luke 10 of the 70 that God's Jesus sent out to preach and to do miracles. There weren't very many who were laboring at that time in the Lord's harvest. And that's true also today. There are many laborers in the church. The church, the Christian church is worldwide, isn't it? The largest church is the Roman Catholic Church. Many of those who are laboring in these churches aren't laboring in the Lord's harvest. The word they bring is not the gospel of salvation. It's the works righteousness. Or the social gospel. They're not laboring in the Lord's harvest. Yes, there are. There are many who are laboring faithfully in the Lord's harvest. 
But when you look at the whole harvest, they're, 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 they're few. And now we can apply that also to our own churches. I don't believe that we have any of our ministers who are laboring in some other harvest. But the fact of the matter is, we are short of ministers. The laborers in our denomination are few. The shortage is critical. Now, the Word of God before us also suggests the reason why there is generally a shortage of laborers in the harvest. It's suggested by the word, send forth. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. That word in the original means, first of all, to cast out, to drive out. And it means then to compel, to compel somebody to go about to do some business. It has the connotation of because of difficulty, that there's, there's reluctance, a reluctance, a hesitancy to go and do what you're told to do. And so you must be compelled. Now that's the idea of the word here. And that suggests that the general shortage of laborers in the Lord's harvest is due to the difficulty of the work. In Bible times, in the time of harvest, the laborers who went out into the fields had to work through the heat of the day. Start at dawn. Work through the heat of the day until dusk. For what? For a denarius. Enough simply to cover their needs that day. And so there was often a shortage of laborers that had to be compelled out in the fields. Out in the fields. Stay working. Send them out again. They come back. Send them out. Well, it's also true in the Lord's harvest. The laborers, the labor of the minister of the gospel is often difficult. And so the laborers must be compelled to do the work. We see that in Bible times. Examples, Moses. Now, he wasn't a minister of the gospel, but he was sent after 40 years as being a shepherd in the wilderness to go back to Egypt to deliver the people. Oh, my. He was reluctant. And the Lord says, certainly I'll be with you. Well, Moses had all kinds of Objections and concerns. Uh, how will they, who will I say sent me to them? Well, Jehovah, I am that I am. How will they know that you did send me? I'll, I'll give you, a, take your rod and, and cast it on the ground. It became a snake. Pick it up. It became a rod. Put your hand here. It came out leprous. Put your hand back again. It came out whole. This will demonstrate. But, but I'm not a good speaker. Well, okay, I'll give you your brother Aaron. 
He had all kinds of excuses. He was compelled to go. And he went. Then there was Jonah, who was told, go to Nineveh and preach damnation. Oh boy, did he have to be compelled to go. He went the other way, and he finally ended up in the, in the, in, in, in the fish's belly for three days before he decided he better go. And then there was John Mark, who set out with uh, Barnabas and Paul on the first missionary journey, and, and halfway through, he was overcome, and he, he went back. Later on, we find that he's accompanying Paul again, but he had to be compelled to go. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he was a young man. Paul had to encourage him, buck him up. Don't be afraid. That was the case with me, too. I uh, decided after a disaster in grade school that in high school I, 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 I flourished and I decided to go to college. And then, and then the idea of becoming a minister was more and more prevalent, but I can't speak. I, I, I get stage fright. How in the world am I going to do this? So I made a deal with the Lord. Don't make deals with the Lord, but I did. Young People's Convention, 1966. Our, our church sponsored it. And I agreed to be part of a debate. So I made a deal with the Lord that if I could get up in front of that crowd and speak without stuttering and stammering, I'd go to seminary, which I did. But I had to be compelled. What are the difficulties of laboring in the Lord's harvest that often requires that they be compelled to go? Well, in the next chapter, Mark chap, Matthew chapter 10, we read that when Jesus sent out his disciples to preach and to teach and to do miracles, he warned them of persecution for the gospel's sake. Listen, verses 16 through 18. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and, as serpents and harmless as dove, doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony against them, and the Gentiles. And then verse 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. I think the disciples, when they heard that, were quaking in their boots. What are we getting into? What are we getting into? And that wasn't just unique for them. We read further on in verse 24, the disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate those who are sent on behalf of Jesus to be busy in the harvest. Now, in our culture, 
Well, let me say this. In, in third world countries, dominated by Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, those who are sent forth to labor in the harvest are persecuted. They're imprisoned. They're beaten. They're martyred. They are. And we must pray for them. In our country, that kind of opposition is not strong. Not here. Nevertheless, a man going into the ministry should know that when he brings the word of God to people, certain people in the congregation, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that word, and, and, and they'll, they'll push back. Every minister is going to have that. And also, if you proclaim the gospel of grace in this world, in the Christian church world, you're going to be scoffed at, marginalized, ostracized. That's a reality. That's a reality. But there's more. There's the busyness of the ministry. A ministry, the minister is in a way a 24-7 job, always on call. Instead, of, in, in addition to in our churches to making and preaching two sermons a week, there are other occasions where he has to preach. There's funerals, societies, catechism, hospital calls. Sometimes you're called in the middle of the night to go to the hospital, to come to a deathbed. Busyness. I've been a church visitor for a number of times, and one of the questions we asked, we asked, are, call, are supposed to ask the consistory when the minister is not there, is your pastor busy as possible in the ministry of the gospel? We expect him to be busy. I remember in my first charge, again, I had to go out at night, family visitation, what, I forgot what it was. Every night during the week, my oldest daughter says, Dad, you got to go away again? You got to go away again? Yeah, I do. There's the busyness. And with that comes sacrifice. You don't have time to engage in some of the fun things that others have with their families, with their friends. It's a, it's, a, it's a work of sacrifice. And then there's the responsibility of taking care of the souls of God's people. I remember at my ordination, when the, when the, the form was read, it just struck me what the Lord called me to do. Take care of the souls of his people. I thought, I can't do that. 
I can't do that. But He promises to use those whom He calls to do this work. Now, the minister is not the only one who cares for the souls of God's people. Parents do. Teachers do. We, we, we look out for each other. But there comes a tremendous responsibility to the minister of the gospel. And sometimes, even though the Lord says, I'll be with you, in weakness of faith, you pull back. There's a member of our congregation whose sister was killed in a farm accident when I was a candidate in Edgerton. She was in Sioux Valley Hospital, an hour's drive away, and an elder picked me up and says, we got to go. Told me about the accident. And as we were driving down there, I thought, what am I getting into? What am I getting into? How is this going to be? Well, the Lord's promise was true. I was able to say things and to lead in a way that I couldn't imagine. And slowly I learned to trust the leading of the Lord. But as a minister of the gospel, you get into many, many situations where at first you say, what in the world am I going to do here? But there are rewards. There are great rewards to being a minister of the gospel. Perhaps you don't even know. I served this congregation 19 years. I was your shepherd, under-shepherd. That's a special place, a special honor, a special relationship that is very, very rewarding. You don't even understand that, I don't think. So that when I retired nine years ago, I, I, I looked over this congregation. I'm standing in the back after church. I said, where do I belong here? I lost something. I lost something very important. And as a pastor, families let you in. And happy times and sad times, when there's marriages, when there's death, when there's funerals. There's a precious time where families open up and include you. That's rewarding. And then when you serve over a period of time, Parents have this too, and teachers do, but ministers also. You see the fruit of the word that you brought years ago. You see that in the lives of God's people. What a reward. What a reward. But nonetheless, there's something in the ministry that is such that people have to be compelled. And that, in part, explains why the harvest is full and the laborers are few. Well, I'm wandering around here, so let's get to the third point. The prayer. Because the harvest is full and the laborers are few, Jesus instructs us, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers in his field. Now that's an instruction that comes to the church. He gave that to the 12 disciples. And here, as almost always, they represent the church of the New Testament era. 
And so that comes also then to us and to every church. Of course it does, because it's through the church that the gospel is preached. It's in the church that laborers are raised up and sent. And so that call comes to us too. We as a church must pray, the Lord of the harvest, send forth laborers. We must do that in the congregational prayer. We must do that in our homes and family worship. We must do that individually in our own prayers to the Lord. From this congregation, in the public worship, at the family table, from individuals, prayers must ascend to God, the Lord of the harvest. Send forth laborers. The harvest is full. And the word translated here, pray, is worthy of our attention also. It emphasizes a prayer that arises out of personal desire and need. That's the emphasis. It implies that the church should earnestly desire laborers for the harvest. See the need. This desire should arise out of concern. The harvest must be gathered. There's a harvest Here in in our church, there's a harvest outside that must be gathered. We must make that our desire. You desire that? Certainly you desire that with your family here, but even outside. And this desire should also manifest itself in that young men are encouraged to consider the gospel of the ministry and to pursue it. Parents, you should be talking about this to your your sons. Elders on family visitation. I always do that when I come to a family where there's young men. Do you consider the gospel ministry? Oh, Reverend, I can't do that. I'm not very smart. Well, I'm not either. (laughs) I'm not either. You should have seen how I uh, failed to produce in in, in grade school. There There were reasons for that, and by the grace of God, I overcame that. But it's not just those who who are in the top of the class academically that, that make it and become effective pastors. I've seen in my ministry men who were intellectually, a man who was intellectually far superior to the rest of us, and he he couldn't make it as a minister. There were other qualifications that were missing. In 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for elders and deacons, and that includes ministers, are primarily spiritual. Apt to teach, yeah, but spiritual. Yeah, you have to have academic ability. But young men, don't count it out simply because you're not at the top of your class grade-wise. I look at the ministers in our denomination. 
There was none of us that excelled that way, except all some, not all. But we should put this, we, our desire should be so strong that we have to have laborers for the harvest that, that our young men see this, know this, see the importance of, of being in the harvest. And out of that mentality, that desire, that encouragement of young men to, to consider the ministry, these prayers must arise. Lord, send forth laborers in the harvest. Pray for the ministers we have. Pray that God give us more. The laborers are few. And the Lord will answer these prayers. We must realize that God will gather the harvest. We mustn't imagine that there's some, somehow a situation might arise where there's a harvest to be brought in, and because of lack of laborers, they won't all come in. No, God always sends out enough, even though they are few, to bring in the full harvest. That's not the point. But the point is this, that God uses the diligent prayers of the church and of parents and of office bearers to send forth laborers into the harvest. He has chosen whom he will to be laborers in the harvest, ministers of the gospel. But again, they must be compelled. And again, ultimately, that's God's work. But that takes place in the context of a church who desires the gathering of the harvest, who desires their sons to be laborers, That happens when young men are encouraged. Consider the ministry. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's a matter of sacrifice, but a matter of great reward. Let us pray. The Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. Amen. Father in heaven, we're thankful for thy word. We're thankful, O oh God, that there's a harvest and that we are part of that harvest and, and, and have been harvested already and that we are preserved. But, O oh Lord, give us to hear this word. And not just be hearers, but also doers. And Lord, heed our prayers that we may have enough ministers to care for our churches and give us put our trust in Thee. For Jesus' sake.